Welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Doug Balshaw. And I'm Laura Hilliger. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com slash weareopen. So today's guest is Crystal Rawls, program leader and storyteller, currently directing the Cal State University Dominguez Hills Workforce Integration Network. Quite a mouthful. She holds a doctorate of philosophy in higher education and is generally a huge advocate for teaching, learning and workforce development. So welcome to Crystal. Hi, how are you both? Good morning. All right, yeah, so a bit of a time difference between us today. Um, it's even later where Laura is, 4 p.m., and very early for Crystal, so thank you for joining us so early in, in your day. Of course. So our first question to guests is always, what is your favorite book? Well, my favorite book is um, a book called Teaching to yeah. Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. Um, it's about uh, education as a practice of liberation of freedom. Do you also have a uh, a nonfiction, I mean, a fiction favorite book? Or is this your all-around favorite? Or That's my all-around favorite because it, like, it, it's, it meant so much to me to understand what I was living at a particular time. And then I read this book and it was like, oh, I really get it. I finally get it. And so I used that and I put that into my practice. So this is just like my all around favorite. Um, and I quote it often. <laughs> I remember coming across Spell Hooks, who I'd never heard of before, when Dana Boyd um who you'll also know, both of you, um, she doesn't capitalize her name. And she said she doesn't do it because of Bell Hooks. And that's how I came across the work of Bell Hooks. And I haven't read Bell Hooks directly. I've read it kind of secondarily through other people's work and quoted and stuff. But is there anything in particular about that book? You talked about how it influenced your practice. But is there any particular part of that book that when you think of it, like that's the bit that you... You go to that section, that page, that particular pithy quote or anything like that? Um, not so much a pithy quote, but a, a section of understanding. So there's a place where she was talking about how much she loved education as a kid, how she loved learning, she loved going to school, and then integration happened. And so here in the United States, we understand that to be the kind of um, Brown v. Board 1965-esque pushing everyone together. And often we think of integration as such this positive thing. And as a person who's in higher education, you have to wonder while you're going through education and while you're learning these things, like, how is this positive? Because it's such a negative experience. It's almost punitive regularly. Um, and then I read Teaching to Transgress in this place where she talks about learning and loving it and then surviving integration and education with teachers who literally hated her and didn't want her in the classroom. And so then I went, oh, education is not about learning. It is about, you know, surviving the societal process because that's how I felt all the time as a young black woman. I didn't go to school very much. <laughs> um, I dropped out. I was bored. I went for the tests and it wasn't enough to prove that I was smart enough and could do the work. I did the tests, I got the A's, but I didn't attend enough. 
Mm-hmm. I wasn't quiet enough and I didn't understand. And mm-hmm. in reading Teaching to Transgress, I understood. Interesting. So in the US, I guess, which is different to, to most of Europe, there's the concept of, of seat time, which I think is still a still a thing, isn't it? Yes, like you absolutely. Have <laughs> Even if you ace the test, you still have to sit there. Yeah? yeah. Instead of skipping me a couple of grades, which would have challenged me perhaps and given me this leg up in society, um, they kicked me out of school. They expelled me. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't go back because it wasn't worth my time. <laughs> can you can you talk a little bit about that? Can you talk about um, your sort of your career pathway? Um, mm-hmm. You had a you had a, a like you got kicked out of out of high school, and then how did how did you go from um, you know not finishing high school or finishing in another way to you know where you are now, which is a a, a program leader, a storyteller at a major. Uh, state university I mean you're you've um it's you're in a very different situation now and I'd I'd love to hear kind of how that came about um so you know one thing I have to say is I knew I was smart enough and that helped that helped a lot so I just went and got a job I was like that's fine (laughs) you know somebody will pay me to do something so I got a job as a receptionist and I really liked talking to people and making things work for other people, because, you know, car salesmen aren't the best at paperwork sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I enjoyed that. And most people didn't realize I was 15. Mm -hmm. They just didn't realize it. Nobody cared. I could work after school. That was enough hours for me to live my life. And um, so I worked as a receptionist first at a car dealership. And then I got into the trucking industry as a receptionist. Really loved that pace. Um, Just right. The idea that I was helping make food move across the country was really cool to me in in my 20s. Um, And so I went from being a receptionist to then learning brokerage because the receptionist tends to have to fill in for the brokers when they are on lunch or out of the office or on a call or whatever. And so I learned brokerage and then I went, oh, so I'm making somebody else money. (laughs) So let's not do that anymore. And I opened my own brokerage firm firm my little own mm-hmm. trucking brokerage. Um, and then, um, you know, happenstance, married a truck driver and we opened a trucking company. And so I did my own thing and I really, really enjoyed that. And, um, you know, so cheers out there to the entrepreneurs and to the people who make a way when there is no way. Um, and so then the trucking industry had a fuel surcharge that just made it untenable as a means of income. I had enough money saved away to do what I thought I wanted. So I went back to school because I always wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I went back to school, uh, thought I wanted to be a teacher, learned that teachers do not make a living wage in the U.S., unless you are a tenured professor, that didn't work for me. And so I am in higher education administration now, and I apply the exact same skills that I did in trucking, management and organization and, you know, uh, scheduling, tracking, (laughs) Um, same exact skill set, just applied very much to a different industry. And now with a liberal dose of theory, um, foundational theories that support the why. That's really interesting. I didn't know, because we've been doing some kind of work together over the last few months. I didn't know that that history, and we've been doing work around 
badges and verifiable credentials and open recognition and talking about workforce development. And so for you, having walked walk the talk, like a lot of people in your position, I'm guessing, haven't gone through the kind of processes that you've been through. So I guess what workforce development means for you right now probably means a lot different to people going on LinkedIn, having only ever been an academic and saying what workforce development means, right? Yeah, absolutely. And in the space that we, you know, mutually inhabit open recognition, um, it's very clear. I, you know, I, I think from the story even that the skills may be enhanced by theory, but the practical skills that I use to do what it is that I do are the same, um, pretty much, right? Transition support. Now, I do understand the why, and that makes me a sharper nail, right? Like I can be more focused. I understand the why and some innovative hows. And so how do we see one another, not for the rules and regulations that say this is how we recognize, but how do we actually recognize talent um, in a respectful manner to experience and um, I know this from other conversations we've been in, but that kind of um, pushback, if I want a better term, but some of the the kind of awareness raising that you do on some of our calls in terms of what a different, like a different kind of intersectional response to some of the conversations that we have where people make assumptions about the neutrality of AI or about different ways of knowing, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm really interested to kind of dig in into that in terms of the work that you do and how much of your work is, it's a kind of an emotional labor, and but it's, it's focused on technology, which is a, which is a weird way of putting it together sometimes. Does that make sense? I'm just trying to. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And right. When we think of, or we talk about just the skills, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a nerd. I've always been a little bit of a nerd. When I was not in school, I was reading books. I love books. Um, when I was expelled, the hottest new thing out there was, you know, Fry's Electronics in the United States. I don't even know if it's still a store because it's, it's been quite a few years ago. But like, they were selling computer kits. I had nothing else to do with my time. And it was a new puzzle. It was a new thing to do. And so here I am, first-generation student. Now, right, I have the theory to reflect upon this. I didn't then. I just went and I had a job as a receptionist. I bought myself a computer kit, put it together, built my own computer, had so much fun learning DOS by myself, Um, right? Like, education happens in many ways. And I had those experiences and those experiences, just because I was poor and first generation did not mean I did not have the capacity. It meant I had limited resources. Now, if I were in school twiddling my thumbs like they preferred I be, be quiet, sit there, I may not have built those computers that um, guaranteed the understanding that I could participate in technology when everything else said I couldn't because I didn't have the education or what have you. Um, So the practice, right? I I, I spoke about bell hooks. The practice of freedom was liberation, socioeconomic attainment for myself. And I just understand it in a way that um, when I 
work with first-generation students, I remind them that before they ever hit the university, they had lives and they do things, right? And so it is, it's a pushback and it is a life. It's not necessarily an academic or professional practice. It is a life I continue to live in my worldview and in my life experience that many people in the place that I'm at don't have. Um, I know for a fact that first-generation students are innovative because they have to be. They have no choice. I know for a fact that they are talented and skilled because I've been that underrepresented, disrespected, academically student who could do all the things if anyone had given me five seconds of a chance to have a conversation. You know, so it's a life, um, and I bring it to work, and I let my life over... I let my life be the focus of my work. So for me, work-life balance, it's more like life-work balance um, because it is my life that we're talking about. And I know how many people um, would benefit from hearing me say, who cares what they say? <laughs> like, really, you've already done the thing. Who cares, um, you know, how someone else perceives it? So, yeah, it, it, it's a labor Absolutely. But it's a labor of life, love and responsibility because I'm a human being and that's what we do. <laughs> you know, you, you handle. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, I think this is a really interesting through line in a lot of like quote unquote ed tech uh, yeah. people's work is like the, um, we've talked about this on, on other episodes of this podcast, even just the, you know, the, the curvy line that it takes to to get to where we all are now and you know the career uh the experience that that happened to get people where they are and that like part of the thing about open recognition is that it enables us to actually mark some of those experiences for for the next generation in a way that makes it easier to understand where the lines of privilege and power are and i think those you know the only like one of the things i really admire about you crystal is the way that you use story to actually show other people where those lines are for you and help them see where they might be for them i think that's a really powerful and interesting way to to look at education and to look at the work you do with young people well i think it goes back to what doug said right about um just being able to it, it, it's well it's not really a story it's being authentic it's telling right. the truth yeah. right um and navigating that in an authentic manner or uh, navigating your truth um, in an authentic matter is part of open recognition. It's part of the principles that we collectively put together. Now, would those principles have looked different if I were not in the room? Quite possibly. Mm -hmm. But it takes everybody to be in the room, right? You folks remind us often not to be so North American-centric. And look, I managed not to say American-centric, centering North America, like this little region, right? This little piece of America. And so generous in, right, when I say, so where is that place in Europe somewhere over, right? Like, I am, you know, almost stereotypically about my geography, and there's never any shame. There's an open acknowledgement of the cultural wealth that I bring. Mm -hmm. And we act in community. 
um, right? You teach us, we teach you, and this is what makes it better. We can recognize what's best in all of us, and we put together that puzzle together. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a collective, it's a community build that'll make all the things that are not great about society better. For sure. Just going back to the storytelling bit, um, you said it's about being authentic. And I think it's interesting to, because you've kind of glossed over about the really important work that you do, like connecting learners, communities, and getting people to tell their story in a in a different way. So for example, Laura alluded to another podcast episode where one of our guests talked about being lucky but then immediately went into a conversation about curiosity and that's a kind of um something which we've started digging into in this episode as well it would be easy to think like oh crystal was so lucky to get to be professor but that's not luck that's you know making sure you're in the right conversations that's having this fierce curiosity to get a computer kit and to teach yourself dos and that kind of thing and i wondered whether that kind of curiosity is something that you can teach when you're creating those connections between learners and communities and the programs that you're working on, or whether that's something you have to inspire in others or how, how that works. Um, so I'm going to drop back to my sociology theories, right? Concern, uh, that unequal childhoods cultivation theory. It takes support to cultivate a sense of agency and empowerment. And so when you ask, can we teach it? I, I don't think it's, I think we teach it by supporting. When you lend that support, then you give room to be curious. You give room to take risks. I think that community and connecting that knowledge is important. And that's what I bring to my work. I think that's the piece of that authentic experience that I didn't have anyone to advocate for me or to support me or to even guide me or point me to the direction you know, providing basic supports within the college environment, which we can, we have those resources. And we certainly used them to oppress underrepresented populations. So I see no reason why we can't use those same supports to uplift underrepresented populations. So if we provide these supports where we talk about finance, where we talk about, well, these are the resources, this is where you might go to learn that information, then I think we can teach it. Hmm. But is it just teaching it or is that more? I, I, I mean, sometimes that line gets real fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I mean, I think there's definitely something here about like modeling the behavior you want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of the part of the, um, you know, support structure that I like, I try to help other people have agency and feel empowered by sometimes acting outside of my comfort zone. Um, and, and showing that I, you know, have a voice in a situation where, um, you know, maybe I don't really feel like speaking up because it's hard. Um, so I think those like support systems and when it comes to curiosity, empowerment, helping people like figure out who they are so that they can own their own authentic voice, there's definitely something there about, um, creating spaces where it's safe to, um, to speak up and that you see other people doing it. Um, yeah. And it's important to see other people who look like you doing it. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I have worked my way into a position to where, uh, you know, when I say something that people in the room don't like, 
I can give citations and references and all of these other things that lend support to my voice. Hmm. Um, right. I am, I, I went to UC Berkeley, uh, University in uh, Northern California, and <clears throat> they have a space called the Free Speech Cafe. There was a free speech movement, and a gentleman named Mario Savio talks about, you know, not being a commodity, being, you know, sometimes you have to put your bones within the wheels of the, you know, machine to stop the machine from functioning. My students didn't get to go to Cal, but they have every last one of them heard that speech because mm-hmm. <laughs> I teach it, you know, right? It is the march that Dr. King and et al, <laughs> you know, put their bodies on the line and sometimes you do, right? And mm-hmm. so I am privileged. And so I use my privilege every day to speak mm-hmm. on those things that are that are um, not helpful for mm-hmm. our a collective goal to survive on this planet. <laughs> um, so I speak on it and I say, you can't do it with 75% of the population on board, off, off board, right? Like the global majority are, you can't do it without us. So how about we work together? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that that's something important for young people to hear and to hear from somebody who has taken those lashes that, um, you know, you'll survive it. We'll be okay. I want to, um, oh, sorry, Dad. I was just going to say that, um, so you're working on this this grant at the moment, I think the National Telecommunications Information Administration grant, and yeah. you, you said that, you're, that the purpose of the grant is to close the digital divide, divide in underserved communities. And I know from doing very small bits of work here in the UK, that tends to be like, oh, they need equipment and they need digital skills. And it seems like you're problematizing that to a really useful extent to say, well, what are these skills? Are they actually the things that we think that people need in the workforce? Or is it a different set of skills as well as those skills? And it's probably partly to do with access to the resource of the digital device and the connection and whatever. But actually, there's table stakes and then there's so many things laid on top of that that maybe, you know, grant-funded things don't always get to because they often quite specify the kinds of things you can spend the money on. It sounds like there's a whole more, many more things you want to throw into the pot. Oh, there's so much more. Um, and, I, you know, again, I don't work for NTIA either, but when we talk to our program officer and I explain the the we discuss because I don't even have to explain it. They embrace what I'm saying about community and how the solve is in the community, that it's not so far removed as some people might like to think. It's as simple as connecting devices, but it really is about removing the fear of innovation and technology and opening access to things. And our funding agency is like behind it a thousand percent and you know we we it's a grant there are some things that we can and cannot spend on um but they've given us room to discuss how it could be how it should be and what's the model for doing this properly they're not saying this is the build they're saying bring your knowledge to bear on the build and then let us fund it further and i really appreciate that Um, And I lean into that. I am that person. So um, our evaluation gets a little tough when I say we don't evaluate without our community members telling us what's important to them. 
because what's important to our funder, I get it and they get it. But when, if you want adoption, which is what they want, then you're going to have to ask the community what's important to them and let them have room to learn and explore that in, instead of just providing metrics, um, you know, so it's a build and they respect it. And I appreciate working in this space. There's a, um, just before we dive into some of the AI stuff, um, that reminded me of a wonderful post I read last week. I think um, it's called Explode on Impact. And the, the TLDR of it is it's impossible for organizations to demonstrate their impact if they work in complex environments. Asking them to do so requires them to create a fantasy version of their story of, their, of the story of their work. And this corruption of data makes doing genuine change work harder because it's difficult to learn and adapt from corrupted data. And it seems like, I mean, have read the post. I don't know if you agree with it or whatever. But it, when I read that post and thought about some of the work that you do and some of the work that we've done and stuff and how we're creating fantasy versions of the story of the work that we do because we're trying to please people who are quite far away but happen to be funding this work um, and how it actually makes the cycle harder rather than easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is my first grant, so I don't really know how it's done. Um, Mm. I know how this is being done, and um, it's – in my experience in this moment, it's being done with respect to the communities that they're attempting to serve. Um, or I wouldn't play ball. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm that person. I'd, I'd tap out and say, yep, thank you, but not worth the last 10 years of my life. So, um, And in this, in this program, uh, I, I think that you mentioned some new technologies and innovative practices and I was wondering, so this season we're trying to focus a little bit on AI. We kind of go all over the place with technology and education and um, philosophy and all the other things. But I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about how AI is being used in, in this program. Or We tend, when we think digital divide, we tend to play to the lowest common denominator. Oh, the people who do not have a computer, the people who do not have internet. And that's one thing. But we don't often think about... Um, a friend artist of mine, Mary Harris, who's an artist and who needs new technology to keep up competitively with the artwork that she's creating that's going to cost her a young single entrepreneur um, like 5K for equipment. <laughs> that's just not in her worldview, right? We don't think about the young first generation person who really wants to get into AI, but maybe doesn't have training or doesn't really understand some things and needs some support. That computer, that bare connective device that we give may or may not allow them to access certain levels of this type of technology. And so from my lens, Things as simple as, right, I have to train people on how to use this technology. How about I provide you with some prompts of AI and a training in AI and let you go and learn for yourself and interrogate for yourself the things that you need to know. And so AI can be used in some really innovative ways to help close the digital divide. A personal tutor of all the things you didn't know, whatever it is you need to learn in that moment it can be trained to do things like that. We have multiple tools that can do that. And so not only using AI in that manner in my work is like, it's a new technology, just like um, electric 
uh, vehicle charging stations, those are starting to pop up, be a big conversation here. But who's going to like record that information? Where and how is that data going to be used? Um, right? How are people going to interact with this technology? How do we get them prepared? And I think the first part is just like taking the fear factor out of it. Um, right. Like, let's not demonize the tech. If we don't understand it, take a moment, go learn it, um, go play, you know, um, and by sharing how we use the tools. So I personally use HR in my everyday, uh, not HR, but AI in my everyday work because I hate HR paperwork. <laughs> um, so it has like cut what was like a three hour nightmare job for me into like a 30 minute oh, here's a template now, this is what I need and this is what I understand and now I can move my documents quicker. Um, I teach my interns, you know, work smart, not hard because there is a such thing as work-life balance, whether I demonstrate it personally or not, um, right? And so teaching them how to answer basic questions. Google does a great job, um, right? The search engines do a great job, but you can only tailor a search engine conversations so much right with the booleans and such i mean some are really good at it but so incorporating it regularly into the work um to take the fear out of the conversation um changing the narrative changing the conversation to not what am i going to lose to this technology but how do we as a society benefit from this technology how can it help us um so it's narrative changing right perspective Take mm. it. I think um, what I used to work with um, some academics when I was working in higher education, and one of them, Martin Weller, talked about how we need to move from a pedagogy of scarcity to a pedagogy of abundance. So his whole thing was pedagogy of, a, of abundance, um, and I feel like that in terms of a lot of people's view of the world, it's always like you say there what is going to be taken away from me or what do I lack rather than even if I'm the worst off in in Western society, the access that you have to stuff is such that much greater than any point in history and you can have access to stuff as as your life has proved, as other people's lives have proved as well, that you, you, you know, it's not just, oh, if you try hard enough, you'll, you'll make it. Um, like there are systemic inequalities for sure. But there is a definite mindset, the curious kind of mindset that, you know, you've demonstrated that can get you um, and that kind of mindset can take you to different places than if you have this mindset of scarcity and that you're always scrubbing about to try and um, get what's get what's due to you. I, I don't think I'm kind of getting the point I want to make across, but I'm trying to say that there's a difference between a mindset of scarcity and a, and a mindset of, of abundance. That's the point Absolutely. I'm trying to um, And you say it beautifully, um, actually. I, I say the exact same thing, right? Like if there's only one loaf of bread, then people are more apt to fight over it than if you slice it and cut it up and you show all these cubes of bread and people realize that, oh, we can each partake and, and survive here together. It's the way you frame some things, right? Um and yeah, it is about scarcity. It is about resources, very much about resources, the haves and the have-nots, but it's also about the innovation of the have-nots, right? A lot of times when you think about innovation, 
it is in spaces of where you have the technology to tinker with. Um, and that's where closing the digital divide gets tricky, right? It's, it's not just in a device. It's in that intellectual capacity to, to build and grow things, but you have to have something um, to, to, to begin with. And something can be hope. Something can be intellect. It can be curiosity. It can be pure rebellion of getting kicked out of school, knowing that you're in the top 1%. You know? um, so it can be a lot of things. And it just takes a little bit of effort to dig into what is that thing for each person. Um, because as much as we're a collective, we're individuals. And we each come with a perspective. That's what makes it all beautiful. That's why I love working with the groups that we work in, right? Um, this open recognition, it really breaks down some of those silos and brings together some very intelligent, open-hearted, good people to bring their resources to bear on these complex problems. What yeah. better world could you hope for? Yeah, I feel like the open recognition group of people do come at this from a, a position of, a, of abundance. Um, and it's an, that's an interesting way of framing it because... Usually when it's like badges for workforce skills, it's almost the subtext of that is, and AI is coming for your job. So if you don't keep up, then you're going to be without a, a job. Yep. Whereas the open recognition broadly summarized, glossing over lots of stuff kind of approach is more like, look, you are you. You are part of a network, part of a community. You have unique skills. You also have skills which overlap with other people's skills. How can we together showcase the the knowledge skills behaviors individual differences um commonalities together in such a way that we can tell our story and and serge rave who i know you've, you've come across crystal and laura you certainly have talks about how you need a thread of someone else's story and experience to be able to tell your own like you're weaving a life together and i love that and i, I feel like that's something I didn't understand when I was younger. Yeah. The wisdom of having lived it though, right? Um, I tell my young person, you know, I have a 20 year old, I tell her things all the time. And in the wisdom of Gen Z, they ignore a lot of what I say, but you know, we live and we learn and mm -hmm. we live and we learn together is what make, what I feel is most important about open recognition, about education, about the socioeconomic lift of education, about workforce development most directly, right? If the purpose and point of workforce development is to prepare people for the jobs of the future, for technologies, for innovation, for the world of work to keep us all moving forward, then uh, I would say open is better than closed, be it open recognition, be it closed-minded, be it, you know, open is just better than closed. Um, and so in my work in workforce development, I say be open to new technologies and look to see where other skills and other ways of knowing complement the technology. It doesn't have to give over all ways of knowing. A really cool story I heard recently about the use of AI was at a Los Angeles Economic Development Council panel that I sat on. And one of the um, I remember her name was Val, um, and her company is StoryFile, and it's like collecting the stories of people so that their families and other people can hear them later. And I'm like, 
Yeah, like that, right? How about languages and cultures that may disappear that we now have the technology as we still have their elders, some of our elders with us, to record their stories and their languages and have that forever to guide us. Whereas right now we've lost so much um, in culture, in just histories of coming together that this is this could be a game changer for knowledge, right? Uh, instead of losing the knowledge of our indigenous people and our ancestors, we could use it for good in our future learning. Sure. Yeah, and you know what you said earlier about the you know helping people uh, not be afraid of these new technologies and dealing with the fear and it, like I think the 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 only way to get to that is exactly what you're doing, which is you know helping people to use these technologies in creative ways and in innovative ways so that they can tell their stories and not have that fear anymore. And I I think I definitely think that. Um, those of us in ed tech, I, I think a lot about what is our responsibilities in, in the realm of AI and like new new technologies, because we're, I feel like the educational technology community is always sort of at the forefront of figuring out what does this mean for society. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes I think, you know, like technology is moving so quickly. Are we, the ed tech community, are we fulfilling our responsibility um, to to young people, to students, are we moving quickly enough? Are we, you know, getting these points across in a way that um, not only helps with work workforce development, but like the the self actualization piece of education? So. Um, you know, maybe we are, maybe we aren't. We'll see. Right. I mean, there's that reality. Um, we often think, oh, the tech's moving too fast or medicine's moving too fast or this is moving too fast. But, you know, without those polio vaccines, we'd have a lot more um, children who didn't survive. You know, so I don't know. Um, with technology, I tend to lean into the cultural elements of how can we use it to build on what's there. But I also think that things like the story I just said about how we might be able to preserve indigenous stories and stuff, but we also have to respect those cultures that might not want their story preserved that way. Mm -hmm. And in that, we learn that technology is not the answer to every problem. And maybe we force ourselves to learn those stories in a different way instead of using the tech. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. maybe they highlight areas that the tech's just not going to do it. The tech might be able to generate art, but is the tech is the art going to be able to generate the story behind it? The the thing that made you know my artist friend paint that particular picture. I don't know, um, but we'll see. You know, we can talk on our Apple watches now. <laughs> and, you know, George Jetson is like not TV anymore. We have two way communicators, so um, I just think that. In our use of technology, we don't forget our humanity. We can allow it to enhance our communication. Without technology, how would we have survived COVID, for example? A lot of people didn't. They didn't have access to information on how to get help. They didn't have this one bit of technology to connect them to their families, um, right? And people did not thrive in isolation. So are we fulfilling our responsibility to the next generation? as much as any human can, as we seek to thrive together, you know, we, we move forward so that we don't stagnate and die. We move forward together and some will accept, 
and some will reject. You know, I don't see compact computers out there anymore. Um, you know, people aren't necessarily, I'm sure somebody uses DOS in the world somewhere, but not really. <laughs> right. Um, so we, we move forward um, to thrive. And so I think that we will fulfill our obligation to society in as much as we seek to continue to move forward as a collective. I, I think in terms of coming full circle in this conversation, um, earlier on you were talking about how you make sure that the community is involved in any evaluative activities that you, you perform as part of your grant making and whatever, and, and being a liberatory, I can't even say that word, liberatory <laughs> educator. Um, and so a lot of it is the, the mindset with new technologies and making sure that you kind of can think about creative adoption of them. But also a lot of it is to make sure the right voices are involved in ensuring that it's they're equitable. And what I appreciate, and we've got sort of a long way to go, but what I appreciate about the world now compared to like when I was my son's age was that there's actually a little bit of thought given to how this might impact people other than straight white guys. And for me... That's been a massive journey in terms of you talked about decentering earlier, and we were involved in a conversation the other day talking about decentering as well. Um, and it's a it's a massive learning curve, and some people don't want to go on that learning curve. There's plenty of people in the US, UK, Germany, elsewhere who don't want to go on that journey on that journey. But I'm hoping that everyone listens this who listens to this podcast is willing to go on that journey um, and continue going on as well because it's easy to to get and think that you come to the end of that journey rather than that it continues as a particular technology then comes out and another one kind of fades into the background, be it DOS or, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, I love talking to you folks. It's always great. It's always mind-opening and it's, and it's fun to share, right? It's always fun to share these how experiences shape us. And again, right back to open recognition, our experiences shape us just as much as our work life, just as much as our academic life. Um, and they're not necessarily only our academic and work life. Um, our experiences are a lot of things. Yeah. Well, shall we call it? I feel like, I feel like that was a really nice end. A nice, <laughs> a nice way to wrap up the, the episode with such a... A lovely, a lovely comment. I always enjoyed speaking with you as well, Crystal. I think you just bring so many interesting stories. I learn from you every single time I, I talk to you, and I really enjoy it. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, maybe next time we can talk a little bit about open recognition. We kind of alluded to it there, and we've we've talked about it in previous seasons and stuff. But um, maybe we can get back to that in a in a future episode that that you come on. In season, what are we on? Season seven. Come back in yeah. the future. Well, is this where I can say, well, you know, I'll be at Badge Summit and at the Epic Conference in Vienna, so we can talk about open recognition all we like at either of those venues because um, they're both lovely spaces uh, to discuss exactly what this work looks like. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks, Chris. All right. <laughs>